Hi crew, Andy Hood here for episode two of Your Only Good Is Your Last Tour. Well, in the first episode, we heard from where it started, Greg Zammett, who started the company. The second episode, we're going to look at the very first tour guide and listen to his story, Reg Ramsden. I'm sure you'll agree, a very, very humorous story and a very humorous journey. Sit back, guys. Enjoy episode two with Reg Ramsden. Welcome to Your Only Good Is Your Last Tour. Thanks for being with us. No worries. Thanks for having me, Hoodie. So, Reg, uh, your story is a pretty amazing one, but it started way back in 95. Yep, it did. Uh, 95, I followed my uh, my dad up here. My dad was touring, touring as a, a tour guide. Uh, from at Sahara Tours? Yeah, he worked for Sahara Tours. Yeah. yeah. So one of the things that I always was fascinated with in listening to your stories when you first got here and even when we worked together as a tour guide, but how different the tours or tourism and the landscape was back then. Can you remember and shed some light on some of those, I guess, early times when you were tour guiding and, and how you were as a tour guide back then? And I, uh, I just come back from the States and never travelled to the outback before and uh... As I said, I followed uh, my father's footsteps up here to, to see what he was up to. And, yeah, I ended up getting a job in a hostel, and that was pretty nice, pretty good good fun there, driving their hostel bus. And um, sort of saw these tours leaving early hours of the morning to uh, head out on these safaris and these drivers that would come back as, you know, heroes. They showed the... Uh, the tourists, the free independent travellers back in those days, they showed them uh, the most amazing time. Well, I think just the uh, the tour in the country and the landscape and the places that they visited um, gave the uh, tourist uh, an experience of a lifetime and it was sort of helped along with the, uh, the tour guide who did all the cooking and uh, got them up early to do the walks and watch sunrises and things that uh, I'd never dreamed that I'd be doing. And, uh, yeah, it was just it was a, a space that I really wanted to uh, explore, and um, you know, I had had a had the the, uh, the experience of hostel life, and uh, met quite a few people there, and met a French lady, and an Italian lady, and a German lady, and you know, it was just uh, it was crazy. How old were you back then? Oh, I was. Uh, oh, geez, that's a good question. What do you? Uh, Probably uh, around about 23, 24 years yeah. old, I reckon. So what, how many tours did you do before? So you you drove the hostel bus and you liked that style. I mean, back then, backpacking or the hostels, there was lots of hostels in Alice Springs. Uh, it, was it toddies that you were? It was toddies. We'd go and meet the Greyhound bus that rocked into town and we'd go out to the, the train, the garn, and, and meet the garn and, Used to sort of do a little bit of busking, and uh, you weren't allowed to do that. Touting, uh, touting—that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, busker. Yeah, no, no, not at all. But uh, touting, and you weren't allowed to tout. But I'd, I'd do it, and I tended to fill my buses and help fill the hostel. When did you start tour guiding? Did you did that happen pretty soon after the? Hostel bus, and did you get trained, or did they say, "Here you go, Reg, out you go, go oh, yourself, just give them a good time"? I think yeah, that was a philosophy. It was. Um, no, they, they. I was I was in the in, in the, doing the hostel bus just for probably about eight months, and 
somebody saw um, my potential of uh, leading a, a group on an expedition and uh, and they sort of touted me. They come down and uh, they said that uh, we've got a bus, we're just starting up this new company and uh, you've ever been to The Rock before? Uh, I said, I've been there once and uh, they said, that'll do. And, uh, and uh, I had the job of, uh, you know, so this was Greg, Greg and this the, is Greg and Ken Hart, Greg Zammett and Ken Hart. Mm. Uh, when they started up a company called uh, Airs Rock Plus. So it's fair to say you were the first tour guide. Yeah, yep, yep. And how did that first tour go? Oh, it was pretty crazy. Um, it was a lot of uh, I don't know, trying to work it out as I went. Um, but, you know, leaving Alice Springs was uh, an adventure on its own because we had you know pickups from about. Six different hostels, and mm. I had to wheel a bus with a trailer to to round to these hostels. And you know, by about the third hostel, I, I looked and I had a flat tire, and I go, "Oh, this is not good." And we changed that outside the hostel, and then I went to the next stop and found that I had another flat tire. And um, then to the next hostel, and I had another flat tire. And um, before I even left. Heavy Tree Gap, Alice Springs. I had actually had four flat tyres, and um, right? yeah, somebody had thrown thumbtacks. One of the disgruntled uh, tour tour operators mm. uh, was a little bit upset that there was this this new kid on the block, as in tour company, and um, we reckon that uh, a bunch of thumbtacks were were lodged at one of the hostels, and uh, Reg drove straight over the top of them mm. and had these slow punches that. Sort of put me about an hour and a half behind my departure out of Alice Springs, and anybody that's a tour guide these days knows how important it is to do a smooth pickup and, and get on your merry way because you've got such big days. And uh, already I'm an hour and a half late. When your first tour? My first tour. So I went through the gap, and uh, it doesn't end there. You know, <laughs> cruising down the road, and uh, only passengers this Irish lad. I'll never forget it. Says, "Oi." Reg, is that, is that the turn-off to, to Uluru, Ayers Rock? And I went, oh, yeah, it is. And I'd gone past the one and only right-hand turn that I had to take to uh, get me in the right direction, and I'm on my way out to Alice Springs Airport. And I said, yeah, I just wanted to pull up and talk about this this old river red gun that's sort of on the side of the road there. It still is. And uh, sort of got out and had a bit of a chat to the group, and they're all looking at me like, you know, we're – Two hours this pickup's taken, and here you are. Well, talking about a river red gum. Talking about a river red gum. I said, right, yeah, that's it. We're running a bit late. We better get back on the road. And I swung the bus around, and what should have been a right hand turn ended up being a left hand turn. <laughs> One of only two right hand turns that I had to take in 460 kilometres of straight road. So just going back a step, you mentioned uh, some disgruntled other two operators. I mean, in those days, tourism was. Well, backpacker was massive, and the you know there was a bit of atmosphere between the other companies. This new kid on the block, and how was that, Richard? How was how was the atmosphere and the feeling between you know those other backpacker operators? Oh yeah, this is going back thirty years ago, and uh, you know I, I, yeah, it was just crazy. They. I suppose the hostel that I, um, Ken and Greg owned, uh, Malankas Hostel, I mean, they were booking like, you know, three busloads of backpackers onto these other companies and they said, what are we doing this for? We should start up our own and 
and then all of a sudden these these other hostels, these other tour operators went from having this this lovely amount of flow of backpackers on their buses from uh, Malankas mm. and uh, to sort of being cut off and then this new company started. So thumbtacks under the tyres. Um, I even believe there was some uh, some pellets, um, gunshots fired over people's houses and things like that. Um, just, yeah, back in the, the Wild West mm. 30 years ago, a bit different these days. So on that first tour, you finally got on track after two hours taking a wrong turn, which is pretty hard to believe. <laughs> but yeah, we've... Uh, so yeah, nervous, yeah, that's why. Absolutely. And then you're heading down to Uluru and three-day tour, I guess. Three-day tour. Mm. Right. Uh, yeah. And how'd the rest of the tour go? And oh, they loved me. <laughs> <laughs> they thought it was a real hoot because I didn't know what I was doing. But yeah. We just steered our way through it. Mm. Um, they were young. They were just, just wanted to have fun. They were... You know, three independent travellers, you know, the whole bunch of them, you know, they just mm. wanted to have a beer, you know, you know get down there, see the, uh, one of the largest monoliths in the world and, you know, just have a good time. Sunrise, as we know, um, you know, you've touched on it, things are different these days. Talk us through what Reg Ramson used to like to do on tour like what were your specialties or what did you you know you aim to make sure that you you achieved on that on that tour around i know the sunrise was a big part of your tour yeah it was a huge part of the tour the uh the old sunrise um yeah just getting up i mean people were so hung over you just firstly had to pour them into the uh into the bus and and you know as soon as they got and stood at the base of all the room, this 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 hangover, this you know, this fuzziness left the bodies and they really were blown away being up close and personal with all the room. We used to do a sunrise walk, um, and you know, also a lot of the passengers back in those days would climb. They had no real understanding. Yeah, I mean get uh, sunrise, they just you know, these backpackers They'd stay up late and sometimes you just have to pour them into the vehicle and, you know, they just, all they wanted to do back in those days was, was drink a lot, a hell of a lot, and it didn't help that we went on tour with uh, two four-litre casks of uh, cheap wine and um, so that's eight litres of wine. You start off with whatever else they had, but all they wanted to do was drink, climb Bears Rock, and climb on each other, and it was just crazy. It was really crazy in those days. And most of them travelled on mum and dad's gold cart. Mm. <laughs> you know, they were backpackers that uh, were out exploring, <laughs> not yeah. only the countryside, but also anything else that each they could explore. Yeah, each other. Reg, your, your sunrise, what time was it? What time were we talking about getting backpackers up the rock? And, and back Mate, getting people up. Two hours before sunrise, that's what you've got to do to mm. spend an hour stumbling around the camp and then finding that lost person mm. to get them in the bus so you can then drive the half an hour to then, you know. So we're talking getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning. 4 a.m., you know, mm. even earlier, depending mm. on what in time summer. of the year, yeah. And, um, yeah, and being at the base half an hour before sunrise. And the idea was to get them up the top of the roof, was it? To, yeah, to, I mean, back the then... Um, traditional owners that I would hang out with and talk to. It was 
it was our responsibility if we had uh, guests that uh, wanted to climb for us to be uh, climbing and uh, to be up there with them to sort of look after them and make sure that you know they were looking after themselves because it's not an easy easy feat. But yeah, so you climbed right with them, right? Climbed many a times, uh, Hoodie. Uh, I've actually got them on video too because we used to video these tours as well as part of the tour. Yeah. But, yeah, we had some uh, funny climbs. One in particular, um, you know, the, the glow of the, the sun's coming up um, on the other side of Uluru, so very dark on the climb side. And uh, I had another tour guide that got there before me, um, which was quite rare, but she got there. Her name was Desiree. Um, good mate, and uh, she was up to where, where the chain starts. And, you know, you, you sort of bang onto your passengers that, you know, because they've never been there and you're saying, look, you know, it's steep either side. You need to stay with that chain, hang onto that chain. That chain is your mate. Don't let go of the chain. Always keep one hand on the chain. You know, you drop something, hang onto the chain. Don't go chasing it. And you'll see why once you start sort of climbing. And, uh it was a pretty awesome feat to get to where the chain starts, as we all know. And um, this particular morning, one of my passengers, because I'm down the bottom, and you've shined your bus lights up there so they can sort of make their way. And one of my passengers goes, oh, Reg, this rope here, this rope. And, uh, and I go, no, it's a chain, mate. It's a chain. And he's going, oh, no, but this rope here, this other, this other, this bit of rope here, what, what do we do with that? And I'm going, mate, there's no rope. It's a, it's a metal chain. What are you on about? A rope. And all of a sudden, out of the dark, me mate Desiree, she screams out and goes, Reg, tell all your passengers to let go of the, the rope. And I go, what bloody rope? There is no rope. What, what do you mean? They, they've got to hang on to the chain. They go, no, Reg, there's a rope this morning. There is a rope hanging from a guy that has no legs and what that rope is it's hanging off his wheelchair that he's actually bringing up the climb i go what there's a guy with no legs towing his wheelchair and there's a bit of rope that's hanging down he goes she goes yes reg every time one of your passengers grabs and pulls this rope they're almost pulling this guy off the rope i'm at, i'm with this guy here right now let go of the bloody rope, everybody. And I'm going, everybody, I'm Regis Group, let go of the rope, let go of the rope. Do not touch the rope. Oh, it was incredible. This guy, I forget his name, we could probably look it up, but he's climbed places all throughout the world. He's, he is world-renowned for these amazing feats that he's done. I think he's done the Kokoda Trail, but he lost his legs. He got to the top? He got to the top, yeah. And he, he always took his wheelchair with him mm. as, you know, he, being his legs. Not yeah, that he yeah. would have been able to use it too yeah. much up there. but That's an extension of him. Yeah, this is it. it's, it's his legs, so he took them wherever he went. So crazy, crazy. I'll never forget that. Oh. That's a great story and probably shows you back in those days. I mean, over, like, over 20 years that you've been a tour guide. 30 years. 30 years. So there would have been those stories and people that you've met along the way as a tour guide, um, I know you've, you've met some incredible people. There's other people that are sort of stuck in your mind that really inspired you or, you know, you had 20 people all the time, you know, sort of two or three times a week. So you met a lot of people over those years, Rich. Mate, I've, I've met a lot of people. I mean, they all were special. I'm sure if uh, somebody came up to me and said, oh, you remember this tour, 
and if they told me something that specifically happened on that tour, because there was always something out of the ordinary, always some twisted something that happened on that tour that would throw you back to uh, mm. to that memory. But I've done a hell of a lot of tours, and uh, you know, it's just it was about mateship and you know looking after your guests. But you know, your mates were those other tour guides, and you just really enjoyed being out there. You know, in amongst the the powerfulness of Nauru and you know Katajuda and the Aboriginal stories and culture and history, but then being able to show people and them being very interested because you know, free independent travellers they they just didn't use it as a tick on a list of things mm. to do. They were researching. They wanted to travel. You know, they really wanted to be there, and it wasn't easy to get to places. So you just sort of you were dealing with people that really cared about and really interested in what they wanted to see. And, yeah, I think that's gone a bit these days with people. It's being so easy to travel. Well, one of the most significant things that you would probably have seen is the Wi-Fi, mobile phones, like back in the first tour. Um, there wasn't any of that. No, it was... Uh, there was cassettes, <laughs> there were cassettes that would unwind themselves and you had to have a pen and you were constantly going down the road swinging this tape around trying to tight, tighten the tape up in, inside the cassette tape, trying to tee up Pink Floyd, you know, the wall, driving to the rock, you know, just uh, there was no mobile phones, there was no, you know, yeah, there was just none of that. And, you see a difference today with that? Oh, I do, for sure. You see people that are uh, just glued to their, their devices. They, you know, It's nice to get them out and then they start freaking and having withdrawals mm. once they get out of range that they haven't got it. I mean, even taking photos, it, it's all done on the phone these days mm. and doing little clips and stuff. So, you know, as I mentioned, when I did tours, I had to carry a camera and film this and then somebody had to edit it and make a film but uh yeah i do notice that having uh mobile phones and devices and stuff people sort of tend to switch off so from central australia you you branched out to doing tours from alastadar yeah 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 um yeah i did uh for once again for adventure tours i did uh Ezra Plus in those days, but um, did a pilot trip with uh, a fellow tour guide mate who's still very good friends, Jason Hart. And uh, we did how did a, that trip go? Oh, that was a that was a bit of a, a rocky one as well as they always are when the first. Um, I think I, I clashed with one of the, the passengers. It was like a, a pilot trip that was given to them for you know, next to nothing to to see how we could map out. A trip, and you know, even though this guy only paid a hundred bucks for like six days, he he uh, thought he paid a million dollars and one of the whole nine yards, and because we we're going to miss out on something little, and you know, he freaked out. And I, I just clashed heads. It was I was tired. It was a long trip, and uh, but I ended up doing a lot of those those trips up to uh, Darwin and through through Kakadu. Yeah, and. Lifestyle back in those days is you lived in a staff corridor. 
called the it was at Malanka, which was a four hundred and twenty six bed dorm hotel. Um and you had a staff room there with fellow tour guides. Yeah, it was called the horror door. It was like a corridor of all these little one bedroom or just a bed bedroom, uh, with a communal toilet. But uh it was a oh, it was probably about ten of us that lived in these rooms and uh sort of tucked down the back of this hotel and uh yeah and the hostel was right up the other end and there was a big bar in between and a couple of swimming pools and yeah the shenanigans that went on there probably a little bit too much to tell you on this uh this podcast but at the end of the day it could be another another story to tell this is yeah, crazy we all live together and uh we all run amok together and we all had you know we had no money because our our money went up to the bar tab that we ran up uh and we used to drink jugs of rum not just with a few nips they sort of yeah, looked after you yeah they looked after us at, at mm. that bar but yeah crazy uh it was good i mean it was it was great good times good great times great times <laughs> Who uh, in those days, um, and even now, did was there any anyone influenced you as a sort of leader or a mentor or someone that you looked up to that when you're out on tour? I mean, really, you're the first tour guide, so you're probably a mentor and some someone that I know people speak very highly of you as a tour guide and still do. It's incredible that you're, you know, at 23 years of age and then some 30 years later you're still tour guiding. Um, that's incredible. Through those years, have you had anyone that you sort of looked at, went to, mentor, or someone that you'd look for, you know, for a mentor? Um, yeah, there was just just your mates, just yeah. the other two guides. Um, we all looked up to each other. There was no person that was any better, or we're all all on the same page as we're all out to learn and out to make sure our passengers had the best time whilst out there. My dad, I suppose, I followed him up. Um, you know, he left left my mum when I was a young kid, and coming back from the states, I just wanted to reconnect with him. And and uh, I come up to Alice Springs, and no sooner had I got here and settled in here, he moved to Darwin. <laughs> it was based up there, and then no sooner had I started doing tours up there, he moved on. It's probably a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you two both together to look at him. I've seen you do that. Yeah, that's yeah, that'd it. Be, that'd be a story. That's it. Uh, let's fast track a few years. Well, let's fast track. Um, you know, part of what we're trying to, the stories we're trying to tell in these podcasts, which is where you started and how you got involved as a tour guide. And you were in America and then uh, you came out of Australia. Uh, along the way, like in the last sort of 15 years, you've really established yourself um in remote uh in sorry in educational tours you've got a foundation now you own a business tour company you've had many schools come through central australia you've changed people's lives so uh a lot's happened in that time tour touring guiding uh, from those early days of the, the guy in the wheelchair <coughs> to now um you must feel pretty 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 proud of what you've achieved uh, tell us about your foundation and and what you've done at Lilla. Yeah, it's. Um, I saw how tour companies, you know, were, you know, able to sell the territory just by 
photographs of these amazing places and I saw these two companies build their businesses and you know I worked with a lot of old Aboriginal people that sort of looked up to me you know I looked up to them and their stories and their culture but they looked up to me because I was sort of able to get onto the same page and understand their way of life and um I don't know, I just saw companies lining their pockets and I wanted to make sure that you know, families and Aboriginal people that I worked with in tourism for many years were able to get re-involved in tourism mm. um, and I sort of wanted to give back with a business that I created and have a philanthropical, a charitable arm mm. to my business um, because I think there's a lot of companies out there that do very well on selling Central Australia without having to put too much effort because the pictures, you know, say a, a thousand words, mm. and, you know, these places that we go to sell themselves. And I think that they, you know, could be giving some back to locals in, in the country that we work in. And I think if all two companies gave a little bit, we'd probably have a lot more happening in the Aboriginal um, space within these places and cultural centres and canyons and things that we visit. Um, and I just really was very passionate about making sure that they came along for the ride mm. and uh, and were taken care of. But also, you know, I've been working with a group of children that I've, you know, held in my arms as young babies and now they're in year nine. Mm. And, um, you know, these kids are the TOs of tomorrow, the traditional owners that will hopefully go into some jobs in these areas and uh, maybe school teachers, rangers or tour guides or ambulance drivers or resort managers or working on stations. Mm. But there's, there's potential for these kids and my foundation focuses on those children and making sure that they have what they need to to make sure that they have the opportunities that we all have. And, you know, these kids, they, um, you know, they're only getting a sixth grade education and you can't get a good job with sixth grade education. Mm. And, you know, we all have good jobs and uh, have become successful because we had education and we had high school education. And I'm not saying that all these kids and all these you know, Aboriginal people should be, you know, involved in tourism or whatever. It's, they just need to have those tools if they choose to um, go down any road or any path. And it's just having that little bit of education that can make a difference. I work with school kids from around Australia and I think getting into the next generation's minds and help giving them a bit of a, an understanding of our Indigenous brothers and sisters, I feel that um, we're going to have a better Australia and a better understanding and a more of a closing the gap uh, with this next generation if we can emerge school children, uh, young adults from the big smoke into some of this uh, outback life and uh, doing a journey, a trip, um, getting a bit of red dust between their ears and it can really throw that 
curveball or that that uh, that uh, what's needed into their lives. So, cultural yeah. awareness, cultural awareness. Yeah, it's not all about play boxes and Xboxes and playstations. It's uh, it's about having a a heart and an understanding of your own country and uh, getting outdoors and getting with nature and moving through nature the way nature intended us to. Um, nice and slowly is uh, important out here. Mm. Reg, we're just going to take a quick break yeah. and then we're going to come back and ask you about, uh, once again, your, your foundation, but what it's done to the little community and the primary and high school. Yeah. yeah. Um, just with the foundation and what we've done is, you know, as I've mentioned, it's making sure that the education outcomes and kids are getting an educational country. There was a school that had shut down and I used to see it as a quite a busy space. Um, for some reason it was shut. Um, it needed to be reopened, so worked in conjunction with some of the traditional owners and made sure that the powers of be um, saw the importance of this school. Um, the, the powers of be said, no way, we're not going to open this school. And I sort of like didn't stop. I'm pretty, pretty persistent. And, you know, I said, look, you know, you've got 20 kids out there not going to school and their jaws dropped. And they said, no, we don't have 20 kids out there. And I go, yes, you do. They go, no, we don't. And I go, yeah, you do. Well, we better come out and do a, do a census and do a head count. And I go, yeah, give me the date and I'll make sure I'm there and I can show you around. So they gave me a date and uh, pretty much um, went around in one of my buses and picked up a whole bunch of kids from Alice Springs and took them out there and uh, got them all a couple of footies and they kicking them all around. And, and then the education people come out and the government people to do the census and they sort of, their jaws dropped. There were so many kids running around and kicking balls and going, these guys aren't going to school, you know. This is this is not right. This, this school here needs to to reopen the traditional owners. They want it open. They want their kids to be educated. And, uh, you know, and there's this shut down building at all. It's got power and it just needs a, um, I said the phone's even connected up and the school's been shut for seven years and somebody's paying that bill because they keep, the locals keep using that phone. And I said, you better, better get in there. So on the 11th hour, they said, yeah, we'll open it up for sure. You know, if there's that many kids running around. Um, I think there was only about eight kids, but, you know. Twelve from Alice. Twelve from Alice. <laughs> and those kids went back and they still kept it open on a trial period and they come back and they said, no, we'll keep it open permanently. And now we've got 20 kids and, you know, we've got uh, a whole bunch of high school kids. The teacher there can teach from year one to, to year 10. Um, but traditionally in communities, there isn't a high school with there. They have to traditionally come into Alice Springs. So uh, we're talking about an area, Reg, that's about 400 kilometres away from Central well, from Alice Springs, correct? Yeah, we've been to the road, so, yeah. So, yeah, traditionally there's no high school. So to have a high school out there that you've helped build, create and establish is, is amazing for a small community of Lilla. Yeah, um, there's three outstations, Lua, Upanali and Wanmara, that are nestled in and amongst the, the canyon and uh, there's about 400,000 people that drive past the, 
the Lilla community, you go into the canyon every year and that's a lot of people travelling past and nobody's ever sort of meeting or even know that there's a little outstation, a little school and there's kids and, yeah, and it was, it was much needed to keep these older kids on country to, to, to continue their high school, not send them down to Melbourne or Adelaide or into Alice Springs, you know, taking kids away from their remoteness, their communities, you know, you cause a lot of issues and a lot of problems and nine times out of ten they'll come back broken with, you know, issues and anger issues and things and it's better off keeping them around family and, you know, their stories and their pets and their landscape and their their culture than uh, to remove them and put them into the big smoke with some of these scholarships. Um, it works for some people, but it just doesn't work for all. And I could see that it wasn't going to work for these kids. And we got them a really good education up to year six and we didn't want to lose them after that because uh, going into town, you can become too cool to go to school quite easily at that age. And uh, we wanted to make sure that they stayed out on community and uh, they could continue that education. Um, on country, the building become too small, too dark, too dingy, still there. Um, we needed to build a new building and uh, we raised some funds along with the TOs and um, schools and school children through my foundation and um, we were able to build a $400,000 building which now has a huge industrial kitchen, a, a library, a computer room, a big open learning area, big veranda, um, which has got the state of the art of everything that you need. Um, and for being out there where they are, it's um, quite amazing that it's there. $400,000, you know, where you could quite easily spend that in sending kids down south, you know, sending five kids down south, you could spend quite easily that much money on, uh, you know, getting them down there, boarding them, feeding them, the flights, bringing family down. You know, you're better off building something on country and, you know, if they choose to want to go down there and go to high school, let them, you know, give them the opportunities. And where, you know, me working with school groups, they have those opportunities, they have those relationships with schools that offer these scholarships. And, you know, it looks like we may be sending some kids down there next year to do year 10 and maybe year 11, but uh, there's a big difference in sending a kid away uh, at the age of 13 than sending a kid away at the age of 15 or 16. You know, they're growing up a lot more and it tends to work. Um, we've done a lot of other things. We've put in uh, playgrounds, we've put in veggie gardens, we've put in pathways, we've created a, a tour company created business, we've created uh, uh, um, basketball court, you know, we've put hot water in the school where there was no hot water. And you had Miss Australia come through there too. Yeah, Miss Australia come through. They raised some money for us. Um, they raised um, and gave me paint to paint some of the houses. Um, you know, the, the houses were so lived in and so sort of 
they're solid houses, but they were built never to fall over. But, you know, you don't go without painting a house every 10 years and it'd been 20-odd, almost probably 25 years since these houses had had a paint job. So with the school children, the paint that was donated and a couple of painting people from in town were able to paint the inside of their houses and uh, the results from that was quite incredible in their health. The, the, the leading health clinic manager out there was impressed within a few months. Their, their boils, their sores, their scabies, their skin irritations and all those general well-being, general well-being things had disappeared and something as simple as painting the houses um, just took away that nastiness that was probably on the walls, the light switches, the door handles, and it, it just changed their lives. And from there, it's just been getting better and better for those people. And whilst you're doing this now, the, the groups that you bring up from your Melbourne cities, your Sydney, and they're very like high-profile or high-end schools are now coming into the Lilla. And you've yep. been able to create a a business and, you know, you talk so passionately and with sincerity about trying to get Aboriginal people involved in tourism and you've done that with uh, with the assistance of your foundation, but the Aboriginal people that live down there now do tours and teach, do cross, well, teach culture, which is something I know all the way back 30 years ago as you were the tour guide, you were, you know, really sincere about trying to do it. And we didn't have enough of that, but now no. you've been able to create that. And That's where I think that, you know, that the tour companies, I reckon if they were in this space that I'm in now, mm. back then we'd have a huge difference with a lot more Indigenous businesses and people on country um, delivering, you know, their culture instead of us guys, white, white fellas, you know, doing it. Um, they stand alongside you and there's nothing better than being a tour guide, a white fella, than having a bunch of Aboriginal people mm. standing alongside you and telling their story with them. And, um, yeah, it's it's something that I'm very proud of. And it's when Marty Tours is their tour company, it's, it's virtually just a campground, an educational campus on the corner of their outstation property. Um, but it's... It's, it's them having a voice and tour, but also those kids can come down after school and interact with these kids from the Big Smoke and it's helping them communicate, chat to each other, which is going to break down huge barriers later on in life when they, you know, if they go into the workforce and, and in interviews and stuff to be able to express themselves. Um, the hardest thing is... is uh, yeah, I suppose is that is having that confidence to, you know, feel like they're, you know, on par equal to yeah. that person that they're talking to, not shamed in any way there, but um, they're getting this interaction and it benefits the schools that I bring, like Geelong College or Mentone Grammar from Melbourne, um, Fintana mm. College, you know, in Sydney, Cranbrook School. Skeggs, Darlinghurst, St Andrews Cathedral School, just to name a few schools that I deal with, you know, giving those kids the opportunity to hang out and kick a ball and become friends uh, with these Indigenous kids on their country. You know, they're virtually doing tours now. They're 
going on the walks, they're learning from the Aboriginal elders because there's there's some way to learn it, some way to do it. Reg, it's been fantastic talking to you, and I'm I'm sure we can. I absolutely know we could talk for another two hours of this, and I'd love to get you back another time to talk more about your your foundation and and your tour guiding experience. But if you look at it, it's been 30 years in the making. You started as a 23-year-old young lad that's naive, naive, (laughs) full of confidence, uh, dragging people up the the Uluru at sunrise, feeding them a beer to give them a good time to, you know, snapshot 30 years later to create a foundation, was, um, you know, build a school, a high school, primary school, uh, you know, for the benefit of the Aboriginal young kids to give them a future. It's a pretty incredible story. I know it's not finished with, Reg. I know you've only just started in so many ways. You were you were Territorian or um, Australian, of the year. Australian of the Year, not nominated, uh, nominated Australian of the Year. So that's, a, you know, a massive accolade for you and appreciation. And I know you won't talk too much about that because you just take it in your stride. Thanks for being part of your only good as your last tour, Reg. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was uh, great. Thanks, Woody. And, uh, yeah, my pleasure in telling you uh, some of those stories. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, tell your friends, and we'll see you next time on You're Only Good As Your Last Tour.